Hello, everybody. It's Dan Woods here on the Early Adopter Research Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Spencer Kimball, co-founder and CEO of Cockroach Labs. This podcast is inspired by a research interview I had with Spencer in which he explained how his globally distributed SQL database works. But more than that, we talked about a historical perspective of the modern database market. And it was really impressive to hear him talk about the beginnings of databases and how they've evolved and then where they are right now. And what was most interesting is that he combined a computer science and a database engineer's uh, command of detail, also with a really deep understanding of the modern context of IT. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a big history sort of view of innovation in the database market. Kimball has a good explanation of the history and development of SQL databases and other data storage systems. And the, the fact is that SQL databases did not spring from the head of Zeus. They were a long line of innovation that led to them. And in fact, they're not as nearly uniform as one would think, given the way that we think about them. Uh, we often think of, of SQL databases as all the same, or it's just a SQL database. But actually, there's a lot of interesting design choices. And by analyzing those design choices, we can look at and understand what maybe a better data storage strategy would be in the modern world. And that's the point of this pad podcast. At the end of it, after we've kind of cleared the decks, we're going to talk about how a CIO, a CTO, a VP of engineering, or even a CEO should be thinking about creating a data storage strategy and in the context of what's now available and, and also incorporating it with what came in the past. Um, so uh, we, we have a lot of interesting topics we're going to cover, such as columnar graph, uh, and NoSQL databases and comparing them to SQL. We'll also talk about this acid rain research, which we covered uh, in our last uh, uh, conversation. And then uh, we'll hopefully get to a very good, uh, at least beginnings of a, a recommendation for a, um, a data storage strategy. So let's just start at the beginning. You know, what is Cockroach Labs? You know, why did you decide that it needed to exist as a founder? All right, so uh, Cockroach Labs is the company that's been founded around a database project. It's an open source database called CockroachDB. Uh, CockroachDB is very much inspired by a lot of the pioneering work that Google did in uh, sort of the last decade and you know, well into this decade now around databases and Google did that work uh, you know, not necessarily out of a sense of altruism although they were good enough to publish lots of interesting papers about it but you know out of a, a need a very pressing need to solve problems uh, related to databases um, based on the kinds of resources that were available to them and based on the kinds of applications and services that they wanted to build and based on you know fundamentally the sort of global scale of their ambitions and their customer base. So when we left, and I say we, there's three co-founders of Cockroach Labs, when we left Google and uh, found ourselves in the quote-unquote real world, it was sort of like descending from Shangri-La into sort of a medieval village. Because at that point in time, in 2012, I think Google was very far ahead of the sort of broader ecosystem in terms of internal uh, infrastructure capabilities. Could you explain um, some of the aspects of the, the challenges that Google was addressing that were far ahead? Because, you know, in our previous conversation, you talked about uh, various ways of addressing the, the, the need for consistency and, and the various ways of implementing transactions and how even some of the big players like Oracle 
decided to be a little bit softer in their approach so that they wouldn't have to do they wouldn't have to solve very hard problems while Google it seemed from what you said earlier took a very hard line approach about look we want this certain shape of a database and if we have to solve some hard engineering problems to solve it that's the better choice there's a there's a couple different um, sort of strands to the narrative that I think you know if we examine them in aggregate it will start to come into focus you know in, in particular Google had a problem of scale unlike any other uh, you know Oracle which really uh, you know sort of won the database wars in the 1990s was never architected, and still isn't architected, for the kind of scale that hit eBay and Yahoo, and then Google, when the dot-com boom um, started creating audiences that exceeded 10 million, exceeded 100 million. So th that kind of scale challenge is the, really the first thing that caused Google to, to sort of jolt into a parallel uh, sort of evolutionary track in terms of how they have to solve data challenges. The other really interesting and big thing was that um, you know, Google had data centers all over the country and then all over the world. And they had these, you know, the early aughts. Uh, that was a very strange thing. Of course, nowadays everyone has access to it, even a startup, because of the public cloud. But with all of those resources and customers everywhere, um, the sort of traditional idea of a monolithic database uh, no longer suited the, 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 both the challenge and the opportunity that was in front of Google. And then finally, you know, fundamentally, when you have like literally a thousand external services living in a data center, running on these different data center, uh, data storage technologies, um, replicating across data centers, anything that can go wrong, sort of like this uh, law of large systems. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. It'll go wrong spectacularly. So making your systems truly bulletproof, not allowing uh, wiggle room and hand-waving sort of, well, there's some anomalies that could occur in this isolation level with transactions, uh, but we don't expect that's going to happen. Now that, that turns out to be a farce in the, in the, in the context of, of Google's scale, and that ultimately led them to uh, insist that everything that was built had a level of correctness that uh, they could minimize that and therefore iterate quickly. I heard once the, um, the lead uh, engineer on Bigtable talk uh, at an HBase conference and he explained that if we just did five nines, that would leave millions of people with bad service. You know, five nines, which is a very you know sought after uh, uh, enterprise sort of standard of quality, just is is not good enough at, at a place with the scale that you're talking about. So, is it is it fair to say that in some ways Cockroach is productizing and making available some of the innovations that were part of you know these these uh, super scale pioneers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we cut our teeth really on uh, you know, Google distributed infrastructure. Um, we were there for you know, the better part of a decade and you know, we had a front row seat to the evolution of a number of distributed systems. You know, we personally worked on a system called Colossus. Uh, Spanner you know, went from you know, a, a, a sort of the next big idea five years down the road finally making it into production which is kind of when we left and you know as I mentioned before and just explain Colossus and Spanners for those people who, right. who so don't know Colossus about them. Colossus is a an exascale distributed file storage system so if people are familiar with Amazon's S3 it's quite similar to that you know, everything's stored on it in fact Spanner stores this data on there 
YouTube stores this data on there, Gmail stores this data on there, all of the indexes of you know, everything on the web are stored on Colossus. So it's basically the backing layer of uh, the, the massive amounts of data that Google's uh, constantly you know, needing to store and is generating. Spanner is a sort of uh, a further level up the stack. It's still definitely data storage infrastructure, but it's not uh, just sort of undifferentiated blobs of data. Spanner is, in, in fact, a database, and sort of the distinction between a, a blob store and a, and a database is that a database typically has uh, you know, some semantic understanding of the data that's in there. So these aren't undifferentiated uh, blobs. They're often metadata uh, where you want to quickly access it, small pieces of it. You also want to be able to change it potentially with many concurrent actors changing the same data and accessing the same data while it's being changed. And that turns out to be a fundamentally difficult problem, and it's one that's been being solved for the past 50 years um, in this sort of un... Uh, <laughs> so it's been being solved in the last 50 years in a string of, uh, you know, sort of fits and starts, sometimes, you know, particularly large leaps and uh, you know, it's a you know, what I kind of think of as an arms race between what businesses need and what database designers and implementers can deliver. Um, whatever is delivered is immediately utilized, and then the application use cases are clamoring for more. Right? So it's uh, you, you never get very far ahead of what people actually want to use. And the things that drove Google to build Spanner, um, and I would classify those as you know, a, a big problem of scale on one hand, uh, and that leads to necessary amounts of sort of strictness and correctness in the underlying database. Uh, a, in, a huge opportunity uh, in terms of international customer base, uh, you know, the ability to use, uh, quickly acquire resources and data centers um, across the country, across the world. These are, these are both challenges and resources, opportunities that Google had available to them in the early aughts. Um, in 2018, of course, that's true for any startup that is developing a mobile app, for example, and needs to build a backend. You don't know if you're going to have users, a strange critical mass of users that pop up in Turkey or Brazil, and these things happen all the time. Um, how do you fundamentally service those? Well, you have a lot of amazing tools at your disposal, um, you know, from all kinds of open source, uh, you know, like Kubernetes, for example, like CockroachDB. Um, you also have the public cloud that allows you to actually acquire resources quite quickly, essentially all over the world. And, um, you know, because of the amazing sort of uh, distribution channels, the App Store, you know, from both, you know, iOS and, uh, you know, Android, but also the, you know, just the web in general, this allows you to reach basically 5 billion connected people on the planet. Um, I wouldn't say overnight, but virtually overnight compared to the way these things used to work. So all of that in aggregate means that um, you, know, you either up-level on your tools and your sort of data architecture capabilities, or you don't compete. Right. And so now that whole narrative, and I, I assume that there's other chapters we could talk about that we won't today that you know, went from Spanner to BigQuery and the current state of Google Cloud Platform you know, uh, that is, that basically is part of your story of starting Cockroach. The other part is the idea of the, 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 the evolution of the databases. Um, and, you know, how databases has gone through uh, an evolution and then, you know, in, in the last 
a decade or so has, has really, it's been a tremendous period of innovation. But what's really interesting that we talked about last time was that it's not clear to everybody what was gained and what was lost in this innovation. And that's really one of the points of, of Cockroach is how can we move forward and preserve what was, was, was gained but not lose anything in the process? Would that be a fair way of talking about what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, this isn't the first time this, this sort of cycle has appeared in history. Um, but you know, fundamentally, Cockroach was born uh, in the era of a separation between traditional SQL architectures, which are typically monolithic, and NoSQL architectures, which were the first cloud-native database uh, architectures. So NoSQL, some would argue, was born at Google with the Bigtable project, uh, and there were you know maybe five years after uh, you know an upswell of mostly open source products that followed in a similar vein. And the goal with NoSQL was to have elastic scalability, to have uh, you know replication, uh, to further you know high availability. Some of those systems included React, HBase. Cassandra, MongoDB, so uh, many of these people have heard of. Um, the things that, that uh, those systems gave up for the most part are um, you know, well typified or summarized by the, the fact that they put no in front of the word SQL. Um, you know, SQL, the traditional SQL databases, which evolved for the, you know, 40 years up to that point, had very strict guarantees. Um, had a very elegant, um, some would say overly elegant query language, which is what SQL stands for, it's a standard query language. Um, and, you know, obviously things like transactions, um, that stuff was very evolved, very difficult to build, even in a monolithic context. Uh, I think the, the realization in the early you know, sort of developers of NoSQL systems was, okay, Building a cloud-native database for the first time that truly is distributed is such a monumental task that we can't do both that and maintain all of the evolved uh, sophistication of the SQL monolithic architecture. So that was sort of a bridge too far. So the, the approach was we're going to take some use cases that uh, probably uh, you know, are simple enough that they don't need all of the evolved sophistication of SQL, but they do need scale. And that's what the sort of big table architecture was, was focused on. Very quickly at Google, uh, so that was in 2004 that paper came out. Two years later in 2006, uh, Google had introduced a new data store called Megastore. And Megastore started to try to bridge the gap. So it took Google all of two years to realize that as interesting and amazing as big table was, and believe me, it spawned the entire NoSQL movement. And that paper was you know, just a watermark paper, or, or a watershed paper, sorry. Uh, I'll back that up. Um, uh, Bigtable was a phenomenal success. The paper was a, a sort of watershed moment in the distributed systems community and of course upon many imitators. Uh, but it took, you know, it, it, it wasn't obvious actually when Bigtable came out internally that it wouldn't be applicable for virtually everything. In fact, uh, you know, the AdWords team at the time was running on SQL, and of course this was the AdWords system. There was complex schemas, transactions used uh, basically everywhere. Uh, you know, that, sort of, that sort of complexity in building applications wasn't supported by Bigtable, but Bigtable could get very, very big. 
the AdWords system needed to get big. So the obvious ask was, can you guys move this AdWords system to Bigtable? And the answer from the AdWords team was, um, there's no way, it's impossible. We need these schemas, we need transactions, we can't do without them. So Google pretty quickly began to work on Megastore, which started to, to add some of those capabilities. And eventually that culminated in Spanner and something called F1, which really kind of tried to bridge, bridge the gap and bring it all together into one package. And you know, when we left Google in 2012, and we're kind of out on the street again, uh, and you having to use what was available in open source, it felt like a bit of a letdown. Like we had, uh, you know, moved from a, a, a sort of era of plenty to one of scarcity. And that's where the idea of Cockroach was born. We wanted to take all of those learnings at Google and uh, put them into a much easier to use, much easier to deploy open source system. And the idea of Cockroach um, came from just the idea that, well, if we were gonna build something like this, all the nodes sort of have to greedily replicate themselves and be fairly autonomous. And if one goes away, the other ones have to pick up, you know, and this idea of these autonomous replicating you know, uh, and, and of the database. Impossible to kill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, uh, that really, uh, you know, I have a sort of dark sense of humor, so Cockroach oh. was born. Well, it's certainly memorable. Um, and uh, it's definitely counter-brand, uh, counter I guess. You probably, a, a, a brand research firm would probably not say, hey, let's get into those cockroachy values. But, but in any event, so we, I see exactly what you're, you're saying. And we're, we're not going to talk about uh, in detail about you know the 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 differences and the things that the NoSQL world can't do. What I want to talk to you now about is the difference between doing the asset properties sort of fifty percent, seventy percent, a hundred percent to achieve these these higher levels of capability. So the last time we talked, we talked you talked about how there are different levels of transactional compliance, or I, I can't remember. You'll tell me the right term: isolation. Um, and uh, the acid properties um, uh, are describe you know elements or di dimensions of of, of, a, of a durable important database, uh, and the um, what you and a, and a few other people have done is said look, SQL is really important. Having the acid properties built is very important, and if you don't do this correctly, you're going to run into trouble. And now this acid rain research, which we'll cover in a minute, shows exactly the kind of trouble that you run into. So would you talk about the tiers of, of you know, implementation uh, from you know, what Oracle decided to do to what some other players have decided to do to what you, and it sounds like Google, have decided to do in terms of creating a, a, a store that's both scalable, distributed, but also uh, adheres to the acid properties and, and high levels of isolation? I mean, the, the, the definition of the term acid really helps add some context to the whole explanation. The term as it was developed in the 1970s, and it was pretty radical stuff at the time. Computer scientists then didn't understand uh, that transactions were, were, I mean, they invented transactions effectively in order to solve a problem that they saw in the wild. And I believe this was uh, for a system that IBM built for uh, one of the airlines, I think it was either Pan Am or American. And it was called Sabre, and Sabre was a reservation system. And uh, as many people that have used NoSQL systems are, are aware, when you do things sort of in a test environment with uh, uh, sort of very little concurrency, you don't need transactions. There's really one 
actor, uh, either reading or writing data from the database. However, as soon as multiple users become concurrent, and one is trying to write something, uh, another one's trying to read it, and a third one's trying to write it also, all kinds of weird things can happen, unless you control that concurrency in some way. So, with the Sabre system, uh, you know, I don't know when it first happened, but uh, you know, multiple users began you know, trying to make flight reservations at the same time as with uh, travel agents back then, and um, you know, they kind of trampled over each other. People realized, wow, there's an actual problem here, and we need to solve it. So the idea of ASIC was born, and that stands for atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. I think most people solved the A, C, and the D. The I is solved at various to various levels of uh, perfection. The original 1970s definition of acid, that I embodied a property known as serializability. And there weren't a whole bunch of other options that you could choose from, it meant serializability, which effectively means that for all intents and purposes, no matter how many concurrent users are trying to access the same data, the I guarantees that all of them feel and experience the database as though they're the sole actor. In other words, you could have 10,000 agents all trying to get the same airline seat, but every single one of them will feel like they're the only one using the database. That means that only one of them will get it, and the others will see that it's filled no matter how they, they you know, come in and access it. And, um, you know, the, the, of course, the way that transactions can interact with each other become considerably more complex than just a, you know, trying to all write one, one value. Uh, it usually happens because you read this and you read that and you write this and you write that. and uh, These things kind of intertangle and they can become quite complicated. Uh, so what happened after that sort of original 1970s definition is that uh, as people uh, started to implement systems that provided some level of concurrency control, they realized that it's very expensive to provide serializable. And you can make the database run a lot more quickly if you can relax it. So uh, as many modern users of databases, SQL databases are well aware, uh, there are a number of different isolation modes that you can choose when you create a transaction. So there are things like read committed, uh, repeatable read, snapshot, serializable, of course. All of these terms are very strangely conceived because instead of representing what the concurrency feels like to the you know the user what they're actually describing is how the database is cheating to not really provide serializable so really what they represent are implementation compromises compromises right in order to achieve better performance so, so you're choosing which compromise you want, essentially, in your isolation levels. Right. It's, uh, you know, I, I should say, like, you can, based on the, the, the transaction isolation level, you can, you can uh, you know, implicitly determine how that's going to feel if there's concurrency and, and you're trying to run your own transaction. Um, but it's, it's, it's really kind of backwards. And so it's very difficult for application developers to realize okay, well, in this situation, I can use this particular isolation level. And in order to really use them correctly, the application developers have to go one step further. They actually have to understand how to manually lock things. So they're essentially having to implement some of the smarts in, their, in every single line of application code that uses the database that the database itself should be able to 
make those same decisions. So, and just, just to take a step back, the idea here is that there are varying levels of isolation. You can pick how strict or how relaxed your transactionality is. The more relaxed it is, the easier it is to implement, but the more strict it is, the more you get toward, toward that ideal of it's as if one person is using you know, the database. It's not necessarily easier to implement. Um, it may be. In most cases, I suspect it is easier to implement, uh, but, but it's more the, the real trade-off is, is about performance, right? The, the, the lower your level of isolation, the easier to guarantee a high level of performance. Because fundamentally, if you have you know, extreme contention and you choose serializable, everything has to serialize. Right. right. Um, and so you could have one user using the database at a time, so the latency of one operation, uh, you know, every user has to wait for the, the, the full latency of, like, you know, sort of linearly lined up of all of the actors ahead of them in the queue. Um, so it's kind of like a batch processing where only one user uses the database at once. That's obviously not what you ever want to happen. And in practice, it's very rare that that sort of thing happens. Um, but, you know, if you have something like, uh, you know, a, a much lower level of isolation, like read committed, um, you can have a ton of parallel activity even uh, while everyone's accessing the same things. And, of course, what that, all of these different isolation modes up to serializable allow are what's called anomalies. So anomalies are where... Un unexpected behavior can, can, can take place. Give an example of a, an, an anomaly that maybe we'll revisit during the acid rain uh, conversation. We'll have in a little bit. Um, yeah, so the, the, the most subtle form uh, anomaly, which is the one that uh, serializable protects against versus the, uh, you know, the, the next most uh, stringent form of isolation, which is called snapshot, is something called right skew. And it's, it's a really tricky one, but essentially what happens is that, uh, you know, two different actors both read uh, a value, say, of accounts A and B. So they both read those values. And then uh, one transaction updates the value for account B. The other represent, er, updates the value for account A. And if you're just using snapshot, uh, what will happen in that particular case is that uh, even though one... You know, one transaction is changing one of the account values, and the other transaction is changing the other account value. Uh, they don't—they're not forced to serialize. So they, they both start with the same knowledge of the two account balances, and then they both, based on that original knowledge, um, alter the two independently. So you can end up—you know—double withdrawing or double uh, depositing, and and so obviously that's a, a situation where. If you allow that sort of anomaly in a system that handles you know, some sort of financial ledger, you could end up you know, essentially having people rob you. Right? And uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the fundamental takeaway from a, this paper, Acid Rain, that came out in 2017. And you know, the, I use that example purposefully of RightSkew. It's actually a fairly difficult anomaly to see in the wild. And that's why. Most databases, including, of course, the world's most popular database, Oracle, well, certainly the most popular commercial database, uh, and SAP HANA, which is another quite popular one. These are used by you know, the Fortune 2000 for virtually everything. Uh, both of these databases don't support serializing. They support what's called snapshot. And snapshot allows this right skew anomaly. Uh, and 
and, and that's sort of a, that's a sort of should be a fundamentally shocking thing. And everyone's known about this for decades. Everyone's used these things regardless um, on an assumption, a, a very, I think, implicit assumption across the entire industry that these database anomalies, these concurrency anomalies, were problematic, maybe. You could get some sort of weird behavior that you could see, but not fundamentally dangerous. Not, not more dangerous than having a user complain about something, right? Well, apparently, uh, as everyone knows, uh, you know, sort of dedicated adversarial uh, activity is on the rise, and you know, these same anomalies are uh, how uh, recently a Bitcoin exchange was emptied out. Um, this acid rain paper is the first sort of academic treatment of the in sort of systemic risks of concurrency based attacks. So let's stop applications. So let's stop there for a second. The um, the the point of what you've been saying is that there's a uh, important property of higher quality programs that is dependent on the trans level of isolation, the level of, of, of transactions that you're you're implementing. And when you don't have that inside the database, it either has to be corrected in the program the program has to watch out for it somehow, and that's what you're talking about, where the programmers need to lock, or you're vulnerable to the, to the problem happening. Yeah. Now, when we talked last time... I should actually like, say that when the programmers are responsible for doing the manual locking, they virtually never do it correctly. Right. So well, it's almost like window dressing. I mean, even database engineers that actually are responsible for building these transaction models and doing it once and doing it correctly in the database, much less in every line of application code that might be doing a select statement, even those database engineers often mess things up. It's very hard to get these things right. Right, and also, even transactionally itself, no matter how well it's implemented, must be used. And so it's possible to access a database without using it. Yeah, and in fact, so, that is the, the default, is to use not snapshot, which is the highest level of uh, isolation that Oracle, for example, offers. Uh, but the default is often something called recommitted, which is basically down at the very bottom of the bin in terms of something that's going to give you stringent protection. But no matter how good we get, we cannot get away from an engineering discipline as being another important part of solving this problem. It's, it's about the code, it's about the discipline, it's about the code reviews, it's about finding ways to search for and protect yourself from these problems. No, so doesn't the database, you're not claiming the database will automatically protect you from every type of error. Absolutely not. In fact, you know, um, in this Acerain paper where they methodology was they looked at a bunch of open source e-commerce platforms, which actually run 50% of e-commerce online, so it's a massive impact, but it was like 12 open source applications. They found in many cases, the applications, and obviously, you know, authored by developers out there, didn't use transactions at all. So obviously, it doesn't matter what isolation level you use, so that's, you're exactly right. The idea of code reviews and the right sort of engineering disciplines are, you know, fundamentally necessary. And uh, if you don't know that you're supposed to be using transaction, which you know, I think you don't have to look much further than a lot of NoSQL usage that exists out there in the wild, um, you get into trouble pretty quickly. Um, but there are, however, things that the database can do. Well, let's let, right, and before we get to that, let's just finish off the acid rain conversation. So the acid rain research, just to take a step back, is a set of academics who said, wait a sec, there is a, a large problem in the world because of the either inept or, or, or uh, ineffective use of transactions. And they tried to examine 
how many systems they could identify that had transactional-based vulnerabilities. And they found that it was a very large number. Uh, uh, and and uh, this research, um, if, if you were a CEO of a company that had an e-commerce capability, obviously you should take this very seriously because if you asked your team, you know, how are we doing, they should be able to give you an answer of, oh, we're doing well because we use this level of transactionality and we're also searching our code for this uh, level of, uh, of uh, you know, for these types of mistakes which we know can, can be introduced. Um, have you noticed, you know, in your own interaction with people, have people come to you because they have started asking these questions and realized, oh my God, we can't fix it with the technology that we have? Um. Not so much. Here's the thing. This was very true of Google, which you know, I think many people believe correctly has good engineers. Uh, you know, my experience at Google on the AdWords project was that transactions were often not used correctly there. Um, and that, I think, was a, a, one of Google's sort of fundamental learnings about the NoSQL, about even SQL usage, is that uh, and of course, as I said before, when you have distributed systems at scale, anything that can go wrong will go wrong quite quickly and will spectacularly in many cases. Um, I think that the, the bigger sort of learning here is that if you leave it to application developers, something that isn't really part of what they're trying to accomplish, I mean, they're trying to iterate on a business use case, not to you know, worry about esoteric things like you know, how two different actors or times a thousand could potentially screw up uh, you know, the interactions inside the database. That's really kind of esoteric stuff. If people are worrying about that, they're not gonna actually build software, right? So the, the, the reality is they don't worry about that. Right? And if you need to solve that, you need to solve that at the level of the database. And you need to make it so that it, it applies sort of uniformly and consistently across uh, all of the applications because the database is actually better and it just sort of supports that. The one thing that was very interesting about the Acid Rain paper that I think was the, the key you know, sort of insight, and it's, it's quite brilliant, is that they were able to find a mechanism to notice these anomalies, which are otherwise very difficult to notice. So they actually examined the traces of the application using the SQL database um, and sending, and, and sort of were able to break that down and determine when an anomalous condition could occur. And that, that's fairly brilliant. But the finding that's, you know, shocking is that just by examining these 12 popular e-commerce programs, as you mentioned, there's a lot of problems. I mean, there were, in fact, I would call it, they were riddled with problems, with transactions. And, you know, I'm not gonna get into an argument about whether an average Fortune 2000 companies, services, and applications that are database-backed are better or worse than open source developers. I suspect, like, you know, sort of at the horizon, they're probably about equivalent. Uh, you know, but it seems pretty clear that the entire ecosystem of probably millions of services and applications that are database-backed that are deployed around the world are, in fact, riddled with, uh, you know, these kinds of concurrency-related uh, attack surface. And, you know, I, I think that the... It's not so much that people are coming to me because they feel like they have to solve this problem. It's more that... You know, if you're going to build a database that truly is going to hit scale, and this is what Google did, this is what Cockroach is doing, um, you can't leave these kinds of things to uh, be easily abused. Right? In fact, you have to say, we're going to design this database 
so that serializable is extremely efficient and can be the default. In fact, should be the default for how applications use transactions. Well, you, and you said before that one of the reasons Oracle made the decision it, it did is because they, did, they were of the opinion that serializable was not scalable, right? Yes, that's right. They, they actually um, have a, an almost, um, at this point, fairly wooden, shambolic attitude, which is you cannot make serializable transactions fast enough. You can't do it. You can't do it. And they just, that's what they say at conferences. That's, I mean, and so their database doesn't support them. Um, the reality is that you can, and we've shown that um, you know, through our work with the TBCC benchmark, uh, and, you know, where we're actually using serializable isolation for every single transaction that's run in the system. And of course, we're you know, uh, consistently replicating the data. So there's a lot going on there, and we still achieve uh, you know, linear scale in the TPCC benchmarks. So now we can get to the goal of this podcast. And I think we have the whole chessboard laid out. We have all the concepts and pieces there. So now, if you were facing a CEO, a CIO, a CTO, a VP of engineering, <laughs> perhaps even an architect, maybe the uh, lead developer, and they were listening to this conversation and they said, look, we get it. We understand that we should be worried. But like you said, our job is not to build database technology. Our job is to build applications. Also, you get that there's all sorts of great things that can happen with these new technologies, with graph databases, with NoSQL, Many problems that were hard to solve become a lot easier to solve. Many applications that were hard to build initially get easier to build. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that they're safe. That doesn't mean that they're, 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 they're okay. I assume you're not arguing never use anything but you know, serializable SQL. On the other hand, how do we get our work done? How do we create a data storage strategy that allows us to take advantage of, of everything, but also be safe. What would your recommendation be then? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be spending, uh, you know, as much time talking about this, this correctness piece as I have if that was the audience. So, um, it, I, you know, I think it's very important to realize that this correctness is something that, you know, if, if we, we took very seriously first because if you don't solve it up front, then you're never really going to solve it properly. And by, by correctness, you mean the ability to implement serializability at scale with high performance. Yeah, transactions, uh, completely consistent consensus replication, right? These are things that, for example, NoSQL systems chose not to have, so they had eventually consistent replication. They had no transactions, and now that they're adding transactions, the transactions aren't serializable. So we just wanted all of those big question marks, which believe me, they might seem small, but when you actually get something deployed around the world, um, they become very large, um, very fast. And so we wanted those things to be buttoned up because the point of Cockroach um, wasn't just to build a, you know, a more correct SQL database. It was to build a SQL database that was ultra resilient and suitable for building global data architectures. That was the actual point, and that is the point. Um, if you're going to build that ultra-resilient database for global data architectures, uh, for global businesses, then if you don't solve the correctness piece, I think that you're not very credible in 2018. 
Um, but it's actually something that, as I mentioned, shockingly, the, the, the big players out there um, have not solved correctly. And you know, the interesting thing about the acid rain is just that, uh, you know, I think people weren't aware of the scope of the problem. Um, and you know, I think that, that that's a bit of an eye-opener. Now, when I say ultra-resilient and global data architectures, fundamentally what I'm talking about is sort of the capabilities that cockroaches distributed architecture allow it to achieve. Um, so with resilience, what we're talking about, and I mentioned it a couple times already, is consistent consensus-based replication. So this means that you know, fundamentally, if you store all of your eggs in one basket, like one data center, Think of a mainframe that has parallel sysplex, you know, executions. You know, these things are incredibly engineered systems. But fundamentally, they live in one place. What happens when that data center goes offline? It's misconfigured. People can't reach it. You don't have a service anymore, right? So, the way that Oracle and even IBM mainframes have been solving this, there's some esoteric ways too. But the by and large, the, the common way is they have a system that does asynchronous replication to another data center, to another mainframe, or to another you know, Oracle uh, box of some sort. And the problem with that asynchronous replication is that if you lose a data center and you fail over, you might have what's called a non-zero recovery point objective. The recovery point objective is how much data you might have lost uh, when you have a failure event from, uh, you know, so that could be if you're lucky, it might be some number of tens of milliseconds. More likely, it's some number of single-digit seconds. And if you're very unlucky, it could be minutes or hours. Um, then there's the time... And all the work that happens in that interval is lost. It's lost until that original site comes back, at which point in time... Uh, so, and then there's also a failover. So there's the re recovery point objective, which is how much data you might not have available when you do the failover. Then the failover has to happen. The failover is called a recovery time objective. So how long it takes to get your service back online. That's often measured in minutes. Again, if you're very unlucky, it could be hours or days, um, depending on how you've architected things. You know, fundamentally, uh, you want to make it so that uh, you, know, you take the recovery point objective down to zero, and the recovery time objective should be single digit seconds. So that gives you business continuity. And there's only one way to do that, which is you have to do, uh, you have to replicate your data some way consistently to some other geographic location. And, you know, this wasn't really, people didn't really know how to do this in the late 90s until Lamport published a paper about Paxos. Um, this was not commercialized until the aughts when Google started to uh, experiment with it in a system called Megastore and a system called Chubby. And then it wasn't truly like put into SQL databases and things until the advent of Spanner and F1. I think Cockroach was the, the first SQL version of this that made it out into the, the sort of wider world. And you know, fundamentally, what this involves, what consensus involves, is that you have not two places, a sort of a primary and a secondary, that are asynchronously kept up to date, but you have three data centers, three replication sites. Could be three nodes in the same rack. It could be three racks in the same data center. It could be three data centers on the east coast of the United States. It could be three data centers across the United States. It could be three data centers in three continents, right? But fundamentally what you're doing is when you do a write, you're going to send that write also to both of the other two replication sites. Whichever one is able to commit first and return to you, yes, I'm also agreeing that this is going to become committed. 
um, however long that latency is, is how long it will take to do a commit. So you have to get a majority. So if you've got three replication sites, you need two of them to agree. If you've got five replication sites, which is another good way to run it, then you need three out of the five to agree. Um, what, this, what, what this gives you, of course, is that you have a zero recovery point objective. So if you actually lose one of those sites, one of the other ones has the correct data. It's guaranteed to. Um, and your recovery time objective is also can be quite fast because instead of having a sort of active and a secondary, or active and a passive, you have three actives. And they're all taking things. And every time one of the actives gets a request to write something, it's, it just asks one of the other ones to concur. Right? But all of them are doing that all the time. So they're all active. So this is, this is actually a, a good property because it means that if one goes away, client load just sort of dynamically rebalances to uh, whichever you know, of the other replication sites is, is closest and available. You know, with with a sort of traditional active passive or even active active architecture, um, you know, you have a you know potential for a sort of manual failover, uh, or you have a potential for the two sites to actually have different futures. Right? One one you're writing something to that doesn't make it over in the asynchronous replication. You do a failover or you little bounce the other one. That other one has no way of getting the update that you just made. So it has sort of regressed in time to a, maybe five seconds earlier. And then you might say, okay, well, I don't see that thing I just put into my account. So I'm gonna add it again. So now you've added two of those and then you kind of move forward you know, for the mm -hmm. next couple minutes and then the other one comes back online and then they have to somehow merge those, which is incredibly difficult um, to get right. So, you know, fundamentally what this resilience capability allows is for applications to be running on a database where you actually can lose data centers and have no sort of concern for the application development teams. Um, I'll give you just a, a quick example of why Google felt like this sort of capability was crucial to their business. When Google used to lose data centers, you know, circa 2004, 2005. There would be any number, you know, 10 to 50 application teams that might have their application running in that data center. You know, all of a sudden, the application is no longer available and users haven't read into it. And so, um, you know, there might have been a strategy and they were all sort of snowflakes, unique technological solutions for each application whether it's AdWords or Google uh, Reader or Gmail, where you know, there would be some other contingency failover. But you know, fundamentally, when the user made that uh, you know, shift, something might have gone wrong. Some data might have gotten lost. Some conflict resolution might be necessary. And in fact, what actually that led to was what's called postmortems. So postmortem for an application development team is a pretty huge displacement of productivity. It's, nor is it good for morale, but you know, what, what essentially happens is whatever the application development team was supposed to be doing the following day or two days or week even, they actually had to spend figuring out what might have gone wrong, potentially crawling over the data, trying to cleanse it, vacuum up uh, garbage that got sort of uh, put into the system, um, potentially rebating customers, uh, you know, or it's, you know, canceling double charges, things like that. Um, and, and, and then effectively, you know, doing a little soul searching of how can we make this better in the future. But when 50 application development teams do that because you lose a data center for 10 minutes, 
it's an unacceptable drive on like overall company productivity. And so this is one dimension. One thing you would say to this panel of people who are looking to a data storage strategy is when you're storing your SQL database, try to have the database do as much as possible to solve the modern problem of reliable, scalable databases, which includes everything that you just went over. Yeah. Now, there's a bunch of other sort of capabilities that are now part of the modern problem, uh, such as you know, geo-pinning data um, and also being able to enforce various policies underneath the database access layer so that you don't do it explicitly in the application layer. Give me a couple examples of how your database service goes beyond just what you're talking about with, in terms of scalability and reliability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we call this you know, sort of the global business side of things. And you know, it wasn't much of a concern 10 years ago. And in fact, the databases reflected that. Right? Databases were monolithic. They lived in one location. These days, because markets are extremely international, uh, you know, just in the last 10 years, you know, we've gone from a billion people connected to 5 billion. And in the 10 years before that, we went from 100 million to a billion. So it's just like you know, the, 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 the evolution of the size of markets that are connected and potential uh, you know, audience for cus uh, companies has, has grown you know, by orders of magnitude. Uh, you know, it was always the case that inside a database, information was accessible, sort of tagged with what's called a primary key. It's how you look up a piece of information, a piece of metadata. Might be someone's email address or a customer ID or something like that. Um, more recent database designs included a timestamp as well because it was, it was very clear that, that that was becoming more and more useful as, as there was more data and you wanted to look at things historically. Um, what Cockroach fundamentally is doing is attaching a third piece of data to um, or metadata to every piece of data in the database. So you've got the primary key, you've got the timestamp, and we also have a locality. Because fundamentally, data belongs to typically a company or a consumer. It's attached to them. And that person or that company uh, usually exists somewhere out there in our world. right? And, and where they exist is actually starting to become incredibly important for two reasons. Uh, one is because, well, it's not just in the United States anymore that is sort of your fundamental concern, or just in Europe because you're a European company. Now, again, markets are, are more global, so people are everywhere. Latency has also become a pretty big problem. So, you know, speed of light's pretty fast, but the world's pretty big. So the latency and speed through networks slows, you know, the speed of light down quite a bit. But, uh, you know, getting, if you're an Australian user traditionally, you really get the, the short straw, right? Because most services that are available you know, through like a mobile app that you download from the you know, iTunes, is going to have a backend which is sitting in San Jose or that's sitting in Virginia. Right? So the Australian user's experience is a very slow one compared to the United States or European user. And even the European user's experience hitting that uh, West Coast data center isn't particularly good. Now there's a third thing that's just kind of exploded onto the world in the last decade, and that's data sovereignty. So the regulations around data privacy and data localization. GDPR is the sort of most um, visible of these, um, but it's not by any means the most draconian. So uh, China and Russia have probably the most draconian policies, uh, which specify that all data of you know, residents of those countries must be domiciled only within those countries. So that's a, it's a very strict regulation. 
With GDPR, for example, if you're going to store a European user's data in the United States, you have to get their consent, but it's still possible. So, you know, there's, the reality is it's not just those three examples. I mean, Canada has a law, like all the different South American countries are moving in the direction of GDPR. Um, Vietnam has a law that requires that one copy of the data is stored in Vietnam, right? So yeah, it's, it's like it, there's no consensus on how these things should be done, and there's a lot of, uh, these things are popping up like mushrooms after so, a rainstorm. Basically. Right, and so the idea is that the database in some level has to be able to take that third aspect of metadata, the, the geo, geolocation, and be able to do something intelligent with the data based on that. And that, that can be not, again, a property of the application, but a property of the database. You can say anything tagged with Russian or Chinese uh, has to stay in a copy of the, uh, the database that's in Russia or in China. Right, so with Cockroach, because it is distributed, and typically, you know, I think when you're new to Cockroach, you think of that as being uh, you know, three nodes maybe in a data center, and then you start thinking about it. Okay, well, it's three nodes and three data centers on the East Coast. Fundamentally, what this global story opens up is like a much wide, wider perspective. And in that wider perspective, you have, through the public cloud, of course, data centers in the EU, data centers in the United States, data centers in China. Right? Let's just use those three examples. For a Chinese user's data, again, as you say, you would tag uh, that data as being in China. And, and you could set up a policy with Cockroach, which would not geo-replicate the Chinese user's data, one copy in China, one in the EU, and one in the United States. Instead, what you do is you replicate all three copies, for example, of a Chinese user's data in China, only in China, right? And that's actually required by their laws. Um, and it's also what you want to do in terms of providing a great experience to a Chinese user. Uh, you want their rights to be able to get consensus amongst three Chinese data centers, China-located data centers. Similarly for an EU user, right? Because now if you have a service and you know, it's global, but you want to pr provide it for users in the EU, you're actually going to be able to compete with a regional service because all of their data is going to be read and written uh, within close proximity to the users. It's going to be within their legal jurisdiction. You don't have to warn them that you're moving the data elsewhere. So this makes companies fundamentally more competitive. So it's a better UX, essentially. And so when you do this, um, so, so back to our panel, You've now argued basically that if you're going to use for your SQL part of your store, you know, if you use Cockroach, there's a variety of advantages and a variety of new capabilities. High quality database, new capabilities that handle the modern, you know, business world. Now, how would you explain, like, there's a, there's a really fundamental, interesting use case at a, uh, at a uh, large insurance company that was really tried to do a customer 360 product project and found it very difficult to do it using a SQL database because they didn't have the flexibility. And, and, and what it turned out is that the NoSQL document structure allowed, you know, in essence, a, a collaboration to occur where you could have a common set of metadata about customers, but then underneath you could have each group had its own set of uh, uh, schemas that could be highly flexible, that could be also uh, inconsistent, uh, that, that even though it was worse from a, a transactionality point of view, it was better from a data integration point of view. So, you know, that project was very successful and allowed them to create a real customer 360 where many attempts at, at, at failing, at, at doing it otherwise failed. Now, of course, that's, that application is tolerant because it's highly read-only. All the systems of record are somewhere else. This is more like a data warehouse use case. How would you go about, you know, explaining to this group, you know, 
you know, creating a strat how to create a strategy for data storage that allows them to not get in trouble, but also take advantage of, of this other, these other capabilities. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a, a really good point to bring up because, you know, I, as is necessary when you're trying to do a podcast with limited time, there's, there's always caveats that can't be mentioned. Um, one of those is the, it wasn't the, it wasn't just the complexity of implementing the guarantees of SQL that made uh, NoSQL eschew those. Uh, it was there, there. also is a flavor of NoSQL that you know just you know firmly embraces the uh, elimination of SQL itself, um, mostly because SQL is kind of a pain in the neck. And this example that you're giving, where you have customers where they don't really have a well-defined schema and there's no way really to get it, it kind of happens on the fly, is a really good example of where SQL breaks down. However, there are numerous ways to bridge that gap. Um, you know, in, the, in the case of Cockroach, we actually provide a capability of uh, you know, creating documents inside SQL tables. So in effect, you can have an embedded document store inside your SQL table, inside your SQL database. So, you know, a, in this particular case, you might have a bunch of metadata that you do know about for this insurance, uh, you know, uh, company's customers. So, you know, what's the name of the company? You know, what are the contact information? Where's their location? All things that you know are gonna be true across all your customers. But then they have their own information. And it's usually like a JSON object, right? Which is potentially big, but uh, very sort of uh, open-ended, you know, uh, document format that includes everything that they might want to capture um, from their company. And that would also just be a column in that table about that customer. Um, the nice thing about doing it this way is that all of the changes to that document are still protected by transactions because it's just another column in the table. Um, you can uh, you know, do queries using SQL, which is very elegant and uh, you know, query language that allows a lot of sort of sophisticated um, declarative usage so you don't have to be a computer programmer to, to ask the database questions about what it contains and, and you know using the, that SQL you can do queries of the database that dig down into that document in arbitrary ways so you know essentially what I'm talking about is kind of like having your cake and eating it too right no SQL systems like MongoDB as an example um, were very uh, you know innovative in terms of uh, you know bringing something new to the table that didn't exist in traditional SQL models. Uh, but now the, the sort of you know, SQL systems and cockroaches are the only one are, are recognizing the value of some of that innovation and, and, and uh, you know, assimilating it into their models. And so that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good example of where um, with a, you know, a SQL database with additional capabilities, you're actually able to do everything that you can do with a document store, but you still have all the goodness of SQL and the transactional isolation guarantees. Right, and then I, I would assume that, that you, there's probably cases where the fit to the purpose is fine, uh, you know, with a NoSQL database or a graph database, for example, to, to do certain types of queries that are much more difficult to do and to you know, represent certain types of information. So, so the idea is that, uh, you know, find the fit, find the tolerance for, uh, you know, uh, danger and risk 
and then just allocate the databases wherever you need to allocate the data to whatever store provides the best fit. Yeah, fundamentally, there's never going to be one database to rule them all. And trying to build it, I think, is uh, it's certainly not our goal. I think it would probably end up kind of, you know, not really providing a solution for anyone. Uh, you know, fundamentally, every system of record, which is a fundamentally what Cockroach is, has to have a, um, a change data capture capability. So anything that is modified in the system of record is able to be streamed out into other systems. And typically you'd use something like Kafka as the connective tissue that goes from your system of record to your data lake into Vertica into uh, a graph database for doing fraud detection. You know, you can have these pipelines that you create that uh, allow uh, you know, the, all of the things that applications are generating in your system of record to you know, live second and third and right. fourth lives as they pass through other systems which inform your business. Right, it's got to be part and, and of a data supply chain that has the right support for the, the events that trigger the need to share data, the data logistics to move it to other places. And so uh, uh, I think that that's, to me, going to be a big differentiation in, for companies is how well they implement uh, a generic data supply chain capability. And uh, uh, that's part of it. Well, um, like I said, it was an ambitious goal. I think we've, we've actually got some good ideas about a generic data uh, strategy. And that's, a, that's, I think, a pretty good uh, a result for us. Spencer, this has really been fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll analyze what you said and try to write some interesting stories about it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.